Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back. It's the final show of 2019 before we crest into a new decade, 2020. The 20s, will they be roaring or not? I mean, is it even a new decade? Some people, you know, insist that the decades start on the ones instead of the zeros. I don't know. I can't keep track of all these all these uh, debates that take place. Speaking of debates, one of the things we will touch on today is the Kristaps Porzingis concept of him playing in the post. Of course, Steve Jones and I talked about this in, in a little more detail a few episodes back on this podcast, but I also want to get to some of the other Christmas games that took place and kind of take take stock, if you will. Take some holiday stock. Uh, it's a grab bag today. Christmas stockings, days of Hanukkah. I don't know. I don't know the different holidays. But yeah, with the Rockets and that James Harden game plan that the Warriors, I think the Spurs unveiled it as well recently in their matchup. Philadelphia and Milwaukee, what to make of that. If anything, obviously the Los Angeles teams are up there, some some trade concepts, and and a special guest segment on the physics of basketballs going out of bounds. This one this one's intriguing to me. I tried to get a physics ex- expert to maybe shed some light on what the heck is going on there. Obviously, there's a controversy controversy and a debate about how we officiate the basketball going out of bounds that play at the end of the game on Christmas so anticlimactic with LeBron losing the ball going to replay it went off his fingertips last ball goes the other way so we will have a little bit on that as well so let's start with Kristaps Porzingis the post up the debate around the post up and this stems from what Rick Carlisle said in the post-game press conference the other day. Let's listen to some of that audio. Here's Rick Carlisle talking about Kristaps Porzingis, seven foot three, and the post-up today. You, you know, post-up's not a good play anymore. It's just not a good play. Um, it's it's not a good play for a seven-three guy. It's it's a low-value situation. Um, our numbers are very substantial that when he spaces beyond the three-point line, you know, we're a historically good offensive team. And when any of our guys go in there, um, you know, our effectiveness is is diminished exponentially. And so it's counterintuitive. Um, I understand that. But it's a fact. And I think that there are certain situations it makes sense if we can – if we can get him on a roll in the paint going toward the rim, that's a good situation. And that's what we're looking to do with all our guys. We really don't post anybody up. We post Luca up once in a while when he's got a real small guy on him. Um, but even those situations, you know, the, the value of those situations has, um, has plummeted. And so, you know, we've, we've got we've to realize that this game has changed. It's changed. It's just a, it's just a fact. So, of course, this is something that we've discussed on this podcast, Thinking Basketball YouTube channel. I have a number of videos on Luka Doncic and the Mavs. Still have a 116.5 offensive rating or so, which is the best raw offensive rating of all time. It's also one of the best offensive ratings ever 
relative to league average. And so the idea, I think what rubbed some people the wrong way and made this such a polarizing topic is that any criticism toward Porzingis and posting up is sort of in a way a height bias because it overrides how good he is as a post-up player. It overrides, more importantly, how valuable running post-offense through him actually is. And Carlisle speaks to what Steve Jones said uh, on the podcast here a couple episodes back about finding maybe some middle ground where if you can get him in an opportunistic situation, it adds another element to the offense. Well, Carlisle himself, in that quote, goes on to talk about how excited he is with Porzingis' development just this season in terms of his reads and attacking closeouts and attacking closeouts and making passes. Uh, to to quote Rick... I mean, you got a 7-3 guy throwing it to a 6-10 guy on a lob? I mean, that's that's pretty fucking cool if you ask me. And so I actually almost had Porzingis on my all-star power ranking radar um, for the first time this past week or so because I think his all-around play has improved in the first eight weeks of the season. Defensively, more active, better plays. Offensively, I like some of his reads better. And it really struck me waking up and seeing all this chatter about criticizing him. I had him in my show notes for this podcast about his improvement. And I almost, I I couldn't fit it into the latest Five Thoughts video on thinking basketball. That's what the, that's what the podcast is for. Uh, all the stuff that I forget and can't get to. But I, I thought the discussion would be about Chris Depp's improvement and his play in all of these peripheral areas. And instead, when you focus on the post-up, to me, it's just a height bias um, in his case. And then, of course, it opens this Pandora's box of the larger issue, the historical context, the cultural context of why there's so much criticism about a lack of post-ups. So we'll get to that in a second. I just want to finish up on this thought on Porzingis and the Mavs. When you post a player, when you post any player in the league or run an orchestrated set action for any player, it's not about how efficient it is for that player. It's about how much that action helps the team. And so if you ran a four-out offense through a post player, I saw uh, Suns color, color commentator Eddie Johnson talking about this on Twitter, saying, you know, you can't uh, you can't bury the post up because Hakeem Olajuwon won two championships with it, and obviously he's an incredible post player, and you can run inside out offense, and all those things are true. As Rick himself says in that quote, very empathically and very meticulously. This is something that has changed the rules and the nature of the game and the skills that players have. So the combination of the rules and the skills and the strategy means we've now unlocked offense and obviously the the recent video on heliocentrism and the rise of sort of players capitalizing on this style. But these downhill, multi-directional playmakers face and drive that have such enhanced creation. And then the three-point shooters capitalizing on that creation so your payoff is 50% more than setting up someone for an open two. 
that is explosively more impactful. You will get many more points over the same number of possessions doing that than running a four-out offense around a post-up player. And that's the larger issue. So you can't, if you could orchestrate, if Carl Anthony Towns in the post with his passing or whatever could get you an offense like this and you just surrounded him with three-point shooters, I would say the closest modern model, by the way, we have to that is Shaq. Shaq, Phil Jackson did a great job surrounding him with shooters in those peak years. And the offenses were really good because of it. And it wasn't that Kobe wasn't great or he didn't help. Having thunder and lightning doesn't help. Having a guy at the end of games, especially with Shaq's free throw shooting, who could orchestrate but also be your you know most skilled scorer, having that balance, all that helped. But in general, when Kobe was out of the lineup, as long as the Lakers had shooters around Shaq, a stretch four in Robert Ory, Derek Fisher, Brian Shaw, on and on and on, as long as you had guys that could shoot, that offense was actually really good. Now, was it 115 offensive rating good? Was it 118 offensive rating good? Would it thrive in the modern game? Probably not. You know, not quite at least is the answer. So I don't know. But it is very hard to construct an efficient offense that way. Then there's a there's a larger issue. And Ben Baldwin, New Age Analytical, had an interesting tweet or retweet about this. And he wrote, it's amazing how all the same fights are happening in every sport, whether it's run game truthers, post-up truthers, or whatever. If you're not familiar, the same kind of things are happening in football where people are saying, you know, you need you need to use the run to set up the pass or you need to run more. These offenses passing, you know, 70 or 80% of the time, it's crazy. Doesn't work. Of course, the reason teams are passing more is because it works. It's more efficient. Offenses are more successful this way. The reason teams shoot more threes is because it's more efficient. All of that, and it's probably happening in every sport, and I think it's happening outside of sports, all of that to me is a larger issue that has nothing to do with sports. And it's so complex. I mean, we could have a whole pod about it. You could have a series of pods about it. You could almost almost write a book about it or connect it back to some of the concepts throughout the heart of Thinking Basketball, the book. Cultural preferences, by, and by cultural, I mean within the sport. Biases anchoring you know the way the way people think in terms of thinking errors and when they encounter information that challenges a belief that they already have but even just the even just the preference the stylistic preference for one type of player or another all of that is always going to be heavily predisposed to what you grew up with and what you were used to it's your exposure. It's your exposure that defines the aesthetic tastes that you have. And that doesn't mean all of us will be stuck in our ways when we're 30, 40, 60, 80, whatever. That's not what that means. But for the most part, many of us are stuck in our ways. And we see this, if you're curious, you know, 30 seconds of uh, sort of behavioral insight. 
we see this in different cultural reactions to art. And so in some cultures, a little asymmetry in art is fantastic and some a lot is fantastic and some none is fantastic. In some cultures, certain colors evoke different types of emotions or imagery based on what they've been connected to. And so that exposure to seeing something, when when someone comes along on Twitter, I think Eddie Johnson himself said this, post-ups are beautiful, some of the ways I played were beautiful, three-pointers are ugly and bad. Now, I don't want to straw man him at all. Uh, I'm sure there's probably more nuance to that. But his, he has many tweets to this effect where he's actually using language, saying it's ugly and bad versus good and beautiful. And of course, he's not alone in this. And that singular point, again, there could be many other factors for why people are digging their mud in the heel, heels in the mud or why coaches, you know, go with something that worked before because it's considered old school, but to them, it's just what they've done. There are many other factors. But I think on this aesthetic point, the one key cognitive insight I can share is that you're really just trained up on whatever whatever things you like aesthetically, you're trained up on what you've been exposed to. And so some of us are a little more malleable as we get older to shifting those likes and tastes. And I'm sure you're, if you're a little bit older, you think, well, my tastes have changed. Yes, your tastes will change. But your baseline acceptance of normalcy and all the norms and, and kind of practices around you, that's, uh, that's sort of the, the foundation for your landscape of what you find aesthetically pleasing and don't find aesthetically pleasing. You see this in music as well. Music in many ways is the one that's closer to sports because you grow up with certain sounds, the sounds change a lot, and they sound foreign sometimes, and your brain goes... Wait a second, that's not what it's supposed to sound like. Anyway, um, coming up in a second, we're going to get to the bottom of this out-of-bounds situation where players knock the ball out of bounds, and there's this controversy about overturning them in the last two minutes and not in the first 46 minutes. So I just wanted to go straight to a physics source, and my question you know, was, how often has this been happening and is it just normal? It feels like every time we replay one of these calls, it goes off the offensive player. So we'll have that in a second. But first, speaking of, I just mentioned Ben Baldwin, a great analytics guy for The Athletic Seattle. The Athletic, if you want to read any of his stuff over the, at The Athletic, they are the sponsor of today's podcast. If you want to check out The Athletic and you haven't read them, you can get a free week trial and 50% off by going to theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod. Remember the pod? Theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod. There you can download the app, customize the app. Now, so, someone on YouTube, a couple of people on YouTube are saying, I'm, I've never heard of The Athletic. I'm not familiar with it. It is sports covered, wall-to-wall, hardcore with the industry's best writers in basketball, of course. We've got huge names like John Hollinger, David Aldridge, and they do this for the national perspective. They cover all 30 NBA teams like a blanket, so you'll get data, you'll get video, you'll get sort of the beat, you know, the inside story of things that are going on. For instance, that breaking piece about Uncle Dennis and 
Kawhi Leonard and all the sort of negotiations behind the scenes. You can get that at The Athletic. The thing I love about it personally is ad-free, so it's just you pay for it. It's just your sports, and then you get the app, and you customize the app with the writers and the topics that you want to follow, and so when you wake up every morning, you get a feed of the latest things to, to keep you abreast on. Of course, when you sign up over there, you help support this podcast and you'll get a free week trial, 50% off the subscription price. It's a great deal. Head over to theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod. It's theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod. Okay, now let's talk about physics. I know that's what you're here for, the physics, thinking physics. But, But in all seriousness, there is an application here that has to do with when these balls are getting knocked out of bounds, is it even feasible or realistic for the defensive player to be the last person to swipe the ball with this kind of force and then be the last person to touch it? Does it happen ever or frequently? Or I've, I'm curious, so we're going to bring in now uh, my favorite physics source. He's a renowned physics high school teacher here in Southern California, huge basketball fan, Matt Johnson, and Matt, my first question is, what would it take for the defender to be the last player to knock the basketball out of bounds in these situations when it's already contacting the hands and the fingertips of the offensive player? Well, I think the key thing here is, is the puncher, the defender, staying in contact with the ball the entire time through knocking it out of the player's hands? And I think that you're right. More often than not, that's probably not what's happening. Okay, go a little deeper on that for me in the audience. I mean, it's obvious to say if you contacted all the way through and it was out of the hands of the offensive player, then as a defensive player, you're still touching the ball and it's out of bounds on you. But what's really got to go on there for, you know, why is it that the offensive player is actually so likely to touch the ball when we review these calls. Okay. So if you have a round object and you have it between two hands and it's like right in the center of it, you're pushing in on that object. You're pushing with a force that comes out from the palms of your hands. In physics, we call that a normal force, which just means perpendicular out from your hand. So am I, it's like I have a basketball in front of me and I'm like squeezing it like I grabbed a rebound. Exactly. So if you get it right there, then that's a ton of force that's just going in toward the ball. And the thing is, is the more amount of normal force that you're applying on, the greater the friction that you're going to be able to hold the ball with. So it's really hard to knock the ball out of somebody's hands if they really got it gripped. I mean, you really would have to punch it. Makes sense. But of course, most of the time, you're not really holding on to it with that degree of force. Most of the time, you're holding it a little bit looser because like, you have to concentrate on other things. As long as it's in that position, your force is keeping it in place. Does this but, does this apply to Kawhi Leonard as well? I mean, when he's holding it, it's maximum force, right? Oh, yeah. Just with and, one hand. Well, right. I mean, the, <laughs> the, the key of it really is you need to be able to get a grip on the ball such that um, there are opposing forces that are, that are pinching the object. With most of us, that requires two hands. Mm. And then there is the claw. You know, if you've got really large hands, then you can really grip that thing 
Um, and you know, you go up for the one handed dunk, but like there's degrees within that. And I would imagine that if we, you know, had the metrics on Kawhi's like grip strength, it would be quite impressive. Okay, cool. So keep going. That makes sense. All right. So if you're able to push that ball or that object, so it's no longer right in the middle of your palms, it goes toward the end of your hands. And if you're doing this, what you start realizing is you're not just pushing inward anymore you're kind of pushing it away from you. Um, and this is because essentially your hands and your, your hands and hands and so what have I done? I've moved the ball. It used to sort of, my palms were centered on the ball and I was squeezing it. Like I grabbed a rebound. And now instead you're saying, if I slide it down closer to my fingertips, I'm going to have to change the direction of the force I apply. Is that essentially what's happening? Yeah. So your fingertips, or if it's, um, if you're, if you're just holding on to the ball, you know, a lot of times the way you'll see it is it'll be more toward the pinky side of your hand. And, but either way, your hands end. And when they do, they curve. And in terms of the force that your body is applying on this object now, its direction is going to vary alongside that. So what ends up happening is you end up, the ends of your hand end up pushing the object to some degree in the same direction as the defender trying to punch that ball out of your hands. You end up helping him with that cause. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, so, and the thing is about it, like if you if you wanna think about this uh, from a perspective of, like if you've ever tried to pick up soap from the bottom of a shower. Yeah. Right, and you try to grip it, and you know, you want to hold on to it, so you try to grip it and really grip it, but the, the harder you grip, the more likely it is to just pop right out. Flies forward. So at a certain point, essentially, your attempt to hold on to the ball is going to make you apply a force not only in the same direction as um, the opponent, but potentially to a greater degree. And while closing the gap so he can't actually stay with the ball anymore. It's almost like you push him away and push the ball forward. And that's just a natural part of trying to stop him when you fail. When it breaks, it's going to be out on you in a lot of those circumstances. Wow. You just blew my mind there for a second because, <laughs> I mean, what you're saying, I mean, in a sense, right, there's a there's a neurological firing component to this, right, where your reaction, you're squeezing the ball, you have possession of it, and just this very quick, automatic sort of uh, neurological process that's going to send that signal to your muscles is continuing or going to react to that jab or that swatting or that punch from the defender by squeezing or sort of recoiling in a way that actually is going to squeeze the ball out of your hands and in most cases I guess make it likely that you were the one that did it and the last one to touch it. Absolutely and this is also why it's a bit silly to have rules that really care. When it comes to officiating basketball, it's really hard. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think it's always just going to be hard and there's always going to be mistakes. All right. Well, that absolutely blew my mind. Um, Matt, thanks so much for taking the time and explaining to us how all these calls are apparently backwards usually. Ben, it's my pleasure. Love listening to your podcast. So, wow. Did we... Did we process that? I'm still kind of reeling from 
going into the physics and thinking about that. That means on all of these out-of-bounds plays, not all of them, but for the most part, not only have they been calling them wrong, but the, the combination of physics squeezing the ball and our natural reaction to kind of squeeze and pull back as the ball is hit out of our hands actually seems to make it extremely likely that you're the last one to touch it. And so I think getting back to the debate, the idea here is that we strive for consistency. Either we're going to say most of the time when a defender knocks it out of your hands, unless there's some very clear reason to think he was the last one to touch it by by swiping all the way through and still having his hand contact the ball, you know, in a almost cartoonish, like way past down by the knees or something, unless we're going to do that, it seems like when you hit the basketball out of someone's hands, that it's mostly actually going to be quote unquote touch last by the offense. And that seems very counterintuitive to us as basketball people. You would never call it that way on the park um, or at the park or in the gym or on the park. That's not a place. Um, But like, I think all that needs to happen here is there just needs to be consistency. And the NBA has struggled with some of that consistency. If you have a, a rule that you keep applying more rigidly and more rigidly, you get to some of the unnatural foul calls that we're seeing now. And it's possibly just the natural process of evolution. It's possibly the creativeness and craftiness of modern players and specialized specialization like James Harden. I don't know what it is, but we've certainly reached a place where this one might be the most illuminating of the absurdities of doing things by the letter of the law, since for all of the history of basketball, this has been called the other way. So I think they either need to start calling these plays without reviewing them out of bounds off of the offense, which essentially means in basketball, if you can smack that ball out of someone's hands or punch it out of someone's hands when they're dribbling or certainly when they're holding it, then you get rewarded with possession. Or, since that probably seems horrible to most of us, you just go back to the other thing originally and you say, it's not about whose fingertip it touched last. It's about, I don't know, who had... I don't know how you would phrase it, but you just wouldn't make it based on fingertips. So, a lot of people were very critical of the Lakers who as of recording this have lost four games in a row and LeBron's play in that game Kawhi had a fantastic game 35 points I believe uh, got to his spots hit a number of key shots LeBron did not do I put any stock in this not really I don't put a lot of stock in that game the first time they met the teams weren't at full strength it was opening night I would be very cautious of putting stock in opening night from a playoff series matchup perspective. This is the second time around, and the teams were closer to full strength. The Lakers, both LeBron and Anthony Davis, were coming off minor injuries, and I thought LeBron really looked hampered for the entire game after getting kneed in the thigh-groin area in the first two minutes of the first quarter. So I wouldn't put too much stock. I mean, he just... If you watch him the rest of November and December, he didn't have any of the lift. He didn't have any elevation. He didn't have any burst. 
Um, he was, I think, intended to guard Kawhi and work hard out of the gate on defense, and that matchup fizzled away. So I, I don't put much stock in that game other than what I already know, which is that the Clippers are very good, the Lakers are very good, and the Clippers can throw out some lineups that are obviously going to be deadly in the playoffs. So a few more games on Christmas that were also very interesting. One of them was the Philadelphia-Milwaukee game. I did a five thoughts video on the YouTube channel not too long ago with some sort of hint or suggestion that Rudy Gobert and Utah were playing a style that was Giannis's kryptonite defensively against him. And that was a it wasn't a heavy-handed commentary on my part. It was subtle. Sometimes I I do that. I, I won't explicitly get into all of the possible points that are laid out in front of us. But the idea there was, hey, this is really about Philadelphia. This is really about Joel Embiid. It's possibly about Toronto, I guess, although I don't think Tor- I don't think Marcus Hole and Toronto, I don't think they have the horses to do it. So it was really about Philadelphia because I don't think they're going to play Utah in the postseason. And it wasn't about Gobert as an individual, and it wasn't about Giannis. I mean, he still ends up in these games with like 25 points, 30 points because guys go to the bench. He plays at different times. He gets stuff in other matchups. It's that old Bill Russell, Wilt Chamberlain concept. Meaning, if you are a Wilt Chamberlain truther, and you say Wilt dominated Russell, what you do is you cite his 30-point-per-game average or whatever it is. You know, in 1962, I have this in his in his uh, back picks all-time player profile. I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but, you know, you say like in 1962, Wilt averaged 50 points a game. And so if you're a Wilt truther, you say, hey, Russell's supposed to be this great defensive force. He's in the middle of his athletic peak or prime. He's right in the heart of his career. And Wilt averaged 37 points a game against him. Well, yeah, if you don't look at the context of what happens to the team offense and the efficiency, it's, it's just like the Porzingis stuff. Wilt gets 37 points per game on below average field goal shooting and the Philadelphia offenses, which weren't great in the first place, sputtered. And then against everyone else doing the same action, he averaged 50, again, I can't remember what it is off the top of my head, like 54 points a game or something. People say, oh, Wilt averaged 50 in a season. Well, if you took Russell out of the league, it was like closer to 55. And his field goal percentage, his scoring efficiency was much higher. It was above, you know, decently above league average. And the team's offense was above average. So running the the offense through Wilt, even though he didn't pass much in that year, but hitting him on the post, running everything through the post, the team's offense was pretty good. He averaged like 54 points a game or something, and his individual efficiency was pretty good. So you check three boxes. But when you play Russell, it was like in the 30s. And the efficiency plummets for him as an individual, and the efficiency plummets for him as a team. So for me, when I look at that, because Philadelphia is still choosing to run that offense that isn't very successful, the Celtics don't necessarily dictate that. 
all the Celtics are doing is saying, you're accruing a bunch of inefficient volume. And that is an enormous win for Bill Russell to me. It's actually one of my all-time favorite statistics about Bill Russell. The massive difference in performance from both Chamberlain and the team when Russell was in the game. There's a couple games. I can't remember if it's that season. It might have been that season and then a few other seasons. But there's a couple games where Wilt played the Celtics and Russell didn't play. And Wilt went to town. He went hog wild. So again, that is, to me, Russell having a massive win. If you ignored all that context and only focused on Wilt's points per game, then you would say Wilt dominated Russell. How the heck did I get on this topic? Oh, oh, Giannis. That's right. Giannis and Gobert. So what I what I care about there is if you're Milwaukee, what's your overall team efficiency in the short term? What's your shot quality look like? That's a trickier thing to measure. And then you get into the film and the tape and you say, like, when Utah or Philadelphia can execute the scheme they want, they have a rim protector, Gobert or Embiid, and they have good peripheral defenders. You know, Donovan Mitchell's been awesome getting into the ball this year. Royce O'Neal's really strong, good, switchable. Philadelphia obviously has even more defensive horses, in my opinion. And so you're executing the scheme with the players. You're funneling the action to Embiid or Gobert. Why is that matchup so intriguing for me in particular? Because neither Embiid nor Gobert are perfect, flawless defensive players in today's game. The game is so horizontal, so stretched out, so spaced, that as good as those guys are, as great as those guys are, there are weaknesses when it comes to stretching them. We've seen this at times with Gobert against Houston in the past in playoff series, although I think actually last year he did very well. And I can actually see an argument that Gobert has continued to get better as a defensive player in the last few seasons, but that's neither here nor there. The point is, Embiid, even less lateral, less agile than Gobert. He doesn't want to come out. He doesn't want to switch way out on the wing. And he loves drop coverage. And so you can funnel stuff into him in the lane. Well, when he guards Giannis, he doesn't really have to leave the paint. And it's the same kind of idea with Gobert. And so, again, even though Giannis ends up with big numbers, in the possessions where Utah has the personnel on the court and they're doing their thing, especially with Gobert, but I mean, not especially because Gobert was back there. It was kind of a struggle for Giannis and he's just destroying the rest of the league. Same thing on Christmas day in Philadelphia. I actually thought at a certain point, Giannis gave up attacking Embiid. Not that he didn't try to score or didn't go to a pull up or anything, but there were a number of possessions like I want to say late second or mid third quarter where he caught it and didn't really look to attack on a handful of series. And I don't remember seeing that from Giannis at any point this season. So Giannis in that game, just for the record, 18 points, second lowest point total of the season. But again, if you look at, you say 18 points, 14 rebounds, seven assists. If you look at the classic slash line, which I, of course, recommend you do not. And this is a great reason why. Because it overlooks the fact that he was 8 for 27. Only took four free throws. That's a pretty huge deal to me. 
Giannis is a guy that gets 8, 10. Let me read some of his free throw totals. 8, 10, 16, 7, 13, 12. Those are the games in the previous weeks, the earlier part of December. It's very common for him to attack. But 8 of 27, missed all seven of his threes. On average, he'll make two of those probably. So you get up to 24 points, but that's my point. 24 points, 10 of 27, three turnovers, not attacking the way you can attack, not being able to finish over Embiid. I'm fascinated by that matchup. Have been since the since the summer. The other thing in that game, or the other player in that game, I guess, that is of interest is Ben Simmons. I think there's a connection between Ben Simmons' criticism as a shooter, you know, take more threes, develop the three, and Porzingis as a post player. Precisely because you can't just automatically supercharge Porzingis into the Luka Doncic of post offense. You can't just drop him in the post and say, he's going to be 55% from the floor, draw free throws, cause the defense to collapse so you get awesome high-efficiency looks everywhere else. You can't do that. And so asking him to go in the post, you know, we, I had those boxes from Will Chamberlain a second ago. Does it check any boxes in terms of Porzingis' individual efficiency in the post? Nope. Does it check any boxes for the team? Nope. Steve Jones's whole point was try to find those spots. Try to find the spots when you actually are efficient and or force the defense to collapse. And Carlisle talked about that in his uh, press conference as well. Simmons, you would want to shoot, you know, you want to space him to the line and have him shoot so he can open up the floor, improve the spacing, and there's a meta advantage. There's sort of that game theory level advantage of even if he doesn't make that many, the defense still has to respect it. The issue there is that it's very, and I talked about this last week, it's very hard to just automatically make someone a shooter. It's a lot easier to say, hey, you've got that right-hand hook on the post. Let me teach you how to drop step and put your shoulder through. Hey, you're 6'10". You've got great speed and handle. You get downhill. Let me show you how to attack in the half court in a way where you can take contact and finish. No one cares about your 60% free throw shooting. You know why? Because 60% free throw shooting is 60% shooting at the rim, and we'll take that. 65, 70 is better, of course. But if you can get guys in foul trouble and get to the free throw line all day and make 60% of your free throws off of plays that are otherwise dying right now, that's a huge win. So KM, KMEB Backup on Twitter, he asks, if Ben Simmons is the primary screener for most actions, do you think he's? Do you still think he's a half-court liability? I've called him a half-court liability. The idea here, and I've heard other people float this, is to use Simmons as a Draymond Green short roll kind of weapon because he's so athletic and can pass. I, I think in theory that's really nice. I mean, again, go back to Porzingis. A lot of people's solutions to players' weaknesses or flaws is just do it. Just do it. You're seven foot three. I think you should be in the post. Just do it. You're a quote-unquote point guard. You're really skilled. You're the number one pick. Just shoot. Just be a good shooter. Just do it. In case you can't tell, I don't think that's a particularly 
actionable or viable solution most of the time. You're better off with realistic athletic developments and teachable, actionable things like learning how to drop step or put your shoulder through or whatever it is. And maybe Porzingis over some time will get a sturdier lower body base, a lower center of gravity, and he'll be more effective on post-switching people up. But he doesn't have that right now. So I don't see any way to just make Ben Simmons an offensive superstar. One option, of course, is to build the heliocentric model around him that Milwaukee has with Giannis. I just don't think you're going to get very far with that. I know a lot of people have wanted that and think he can be like Giannis Light. I think Giannis Light is pushing it because you don't have the strength, you don't have the athletic tools. If Ben Simmons had a Euro step like that and he had power and ferocity on his finishes around the basket, even without some of Giannis's freak athletic talents, I think you could have Giannis Light because he's a better passer. But I mean, I think you're far enough away from that that working on his post game and then, yeah, it's a great point. It's a great point here. If you could involve him as a screener more and get short roll action, you'd have to probably space the court differently. You know, you have to do a few things differently. But you put him in the dunker spot when Embiid is on the court. It's a it's a poor synergy, in my opinion. You put him in the corner on certain sets. Now, it depends because a lot of times Philadelphia Philadelphia posts up Embiid and they run that 80s Charles Barkley offense where the weak side is just nothing really happens. It's true isolation. So when he's in the corner there, it doesn't do much. I think he does do a decent job at times of cutting, cutting into space and cutting into soft spots. So that's one area that is good, that provides value. Same thing if you used him as a role man. But I I still think in a way his lack of shooting and any other discernible sort of half-court skills to break down the defense, yeah, I'd still call that a liability. A similar thing happened in Houston on Christmas night. It was, it was a really fun slate of games, I'm realizing as I go through the show notes here. Guillermo Santana, hope I'm saying that right. He said, what if the Rockets play Westbrook as a center on offense, effectively as a center, a screening kind of role man? So he's the, he's the screener in pick and roll, similar to Capella, but again, the same idea. You use him as a short roll passer and quick burst attacks. Uh, that would be interesting. I don't know how the defensive lineups would work, but what was fascinating, and I really, I really hope just for strategy's sake, because I, I love mixing it up like this. In case you can't tell, I hope other teams do this more by doubling Harden and then forcing the Rockets and D'Antoni and Russell Westbrook to do something about that. Because what happened in that game is Westbrook took a lot of threes which is what you want as a defense. And he wasn't really able to attack downhill and create and get easy stuff in the four-on-three situations. And so you kind of neuter the whole Houston thing when you do that. And I've said this very recently. I think Westbrook needs to change how he plays in Houston right now. He, he should not be a 25 to 30 shot per game guy. I'm not even sure he should be a 20-shot-per-game guy. I actually think the way Simmons plays in Philadelphia 
as much as it's maligned and all the things we can put under a microscope for his lack of superstar offensive impact, I think that's a better way to play for someone like Westbrook right now versus, you know, what was he on Christmas? He was 11 of 32 on Christmas with eight free throws. That's thir- that's 36 shooting possessions. 36 in 39 minutes. That's almost a, a, a shot per minute, basically. And you only get a couple possessions per minute. That is way, way, way too much, plus four turnovers, team-high four turnovers. So that's it for this episode. That's it for 2019. I hope you have a very safe, very happy New Year's celebration wherever you are in the world. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. Once again, if you want to support the podcast, check out theathletic.com slash pod for a week free trial 50% off theathletic.com slash thinking basketball pod if you want more thinking basketball coverage and you want a more direct way to support all the endeavors here on the podcast the youtube channel uh, all the other content we put up it's patreon.com slash thinking basketball there are different tiers to sign up there you can find historical stats proprietary data we have a leaderboard that we update throughout the year Uh, basically daily live updates with all kinds of proprietary stats. This week just added all the major one-number metrics that I use. So you can have the same experience basically that I do when you get a statistical overview of a player. There's no single one number that you want. So instead of jumping around and going to all these sites, they are there's a nice dashboard you can look at all of my stats. You can look at on-off data, some play-by-play generated stuff. And we've added Jacob Goldstein's PIPM. You can get 538's Raptor stuff on there. Uh, I use that thing daily, so you can check that out. Patreon.com slash Thinking Basketball. And the last but not least, thanks, of course, to Matt Johnson for coming on and absolutely blowing my mind with that physics explanation. Apparently, it is guaranteed by the laws of the universe for us to get that call wrong most of the time during the game you can follow matt at mr j crosses roads just like it sounds uh, mr j crosses roads on twitter uh thanks again to him and the next time i talk to you it will be 2020 new decade or not i don't know you decide let me know on twitter lg35 uh that's everything thanks so much for listening all the way to the end and of course i hope you are having a fantastic holiday